see you guys. How you doing tonight? If you brought a Bible, and I hope that you did, please open it to Daniel chapter 6. You ever in a restaurant and the table just wobbles? You stick the napkins under the thing? You ever done that? You know what I'm talking about? Restaurant table, wobbly. Pet peeve. Like I will not be able to eat my meal unless I fold up the napkin, shove it under there. We're stable here, we're good. A book? I usually don't bring books to dinner. Hey, I'm thrilled uh, that we get to have this time together tonight. Last night, we talked about sin, and tonight we're going to talk about the solution to sin. We're going to talk about salvation. We're going to talk about Jesus, and I'm so thankful to be here with you in this moment. I'd love to take just a second and pray for us. So if you would, would you just join your hearts with me and bow your heads? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the week that we have had already. We thank you for these days that we have spent in your presence, with your people, lifting our voices to sing the truth of what you've revealed to us, to celebrate who you are, God, to have fun, to enjoy your beauty, to build relationships. And God, I pray that all of it, as it leads us to this moment, would help us to focus on what you have done for us through your great son, Jesus, And would open our hearts to receive it. So, Holy Spirit of God, we are dependent upon you to move among us and in us now. We need you to open our eyes so that we can see who you are. And we need you to to soften our hearts so that we will receive you and love you and cherish you. We trust you to do all of these things. And we pray your blessing on this time as your word is proclaimed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. In 2018, there was a group of 12 boys from Thailand who played on a soccer team together. And their soccer team, I love the name of their soccer team. I don't think this would quite work here, but the way you translate their soccer team name, they were called the Wild Boars. It's a pretty epic name. They were called the Wild Boars. And this group of 12 boys, they were between the ages of 11 and 16, This group of 12 boys and their 25-year-old coach one day after practice decided to go exploring in some caves near where they had been playing. And unbeknownst to them, behind them, a massive monsoon came rolling in and very quickly the copious amounts of water that were being dumped from the sky flooded the cave system behind them and they were stuck very deep down in the cave system in a little bubble of air, in a little pocket of the the cavern, but with no ability whatsoever to get out. And this is a picture of them. Now, these guys undoubtedly were in a desperate situation. They brought little to no food with them. They're unable entirely to swim out of where they got, and there is no light whatsoever. So for nine days, they were stuck in the dark with no supplies and no way out. 
And the thing that is crystal clear about the situation that these young boys and their coach was in is that they were completely and utterly dependent on help from outside of themselves. There was absolutely nothing they could do to fix their own problem or to get over their own obstacle. There was nothing they could do to make it right. There's nothing they could do to get out. But thank goodness a team of international rescue divers got together and built a plan and were able to go deep into this cave system and reach these boys. And they were able to actually get them the right equipment and teach them to use it and then lead them out and all of the people made it out of that cave alive. They received help from outside of themselves. In a word, you could say they were delivered. They were in a desperately needy situation, and they received deliverance from someone else. And the story that I want to tell you tonight from the book of Daniel is going to show us that God is a God of deliverance. God is a master at finding people who are in situations that they cannot handle themselves and coming to their rescue on their behalf to serve them and to save them. That is what God does. God is a God of deliverance. And I want to show it to you in the story of Daniel. And so I want to take a moment. And tonight I'm going to read the longest section of the book of Daniel that I have read so far. I want to read all of chapter 6 because this story is incredible. And then I want to dive into understanding why this shows us that God is a God of deliverance. So if you brought a Bible, get your eyes on the book of Daniel, chapter 6, and verse 1, and I'll read for us. Now, before I read, you need to be aware that over the course of this evening, we're going to talk about three different kings. All along, we've been following the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to talk about him. But who we're going to talk about tonight in this chapter is Darius. And he's the third king. First, there's Nebuchadnezzar. Then there's Belshazzar in chapter 5. We'll talk about him in a few moments. And then third, there is Darius. He is the third ruler in this story. And so chances are, by the time Daniel 6 is written, Daniel is no longer the teenager that we met at the beginning of this story. Chances are he's actually quite old by this point because three kings have come and gone. Daniel was most likely approaching, if not in his 80s, by the time that this story is written. He is an old man, and he has faithfully followed his God and lived in the kingdom of Babylon for decades and decades at this point. He is serving his third ruler. Daniel 6 verse 1 says this, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Those are like governors, managers of the kingdom, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one. So Daniel is still a very influential person in this kingdom, and he is set as one of three officials over the entire kingdom to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. 
Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They knew what was different about him, and they knew that they could find a way to accuse him based on his relationship to God. Verse 6, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked." Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What you're supposed to note there is not that in a moment, a moment of panic, Daniel went to do something that he had not previously done. Daniel stuck to his routine. Daniel did what he always did. Daniel went to talk to his God, and he did it three times a day in his upper chamber with the windows open, pointed towards the place of God's blessing and favor, the city of Jerusalem, even though it lay in ruins at this very moment. This is what he had always been doing. And so in the moment of trial and adversity, he doesn't pull the ripcord and do something amazing or shocking or new. He sticks to his faithful devotion to his God, and he goes to pray. And then verse 12. Sorry, verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They catch him in the act. And then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. Darius loved Daniel and appreciated Daniel and did not want to kill Daniel, and yet he is caught in the web of his own mistakes. His own pride led him to make this idolatrous law, and so he has to stick to his guns, and he does. The king declared, verse 16, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So concerned about the situation, he had a sleepless night. 
Verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done you no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, look at this, those who accuse him are going to suffer the same fate that they tried to bring upon Daniel. And even worse, it will include their entire families. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives, their whole families, by this evil Persian king thrown into the lion's den. The lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces, and it says, even before they reached the bottom of the den. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. God is a God of deliverance. And this story shows it to us, shows that reality to us in powerful narrative fashion. And so what I want to do is I want to give you the narrative of what happens in God's delivering power here. And I want to give it to you in five kind of movements. The first is an innocent man. The first is an innocent man. We see in this story, Daniel is blameless before the king and before God. There is nothing in Daniel's life against which you could make a legitimate accusation. Uh, another word that the Bible uses for this is Daniel is above reproach. Daniel doesn't live his life in such a way that there is suspicion about him or confusion about him or doubt about him. Daniel is an innocent person. He is a blameless man. And in verse 4, the high officials, they know it. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground because he was faithful. Daniel was a faithful man. In fact, he was an innocent man. And so what that means is because he's an innocent man, he has to be falsely accused. And that's what we see in the second part of God's deliverance. We see a false accusation against God's servant. Daniel 6, 13 says, Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, here's where the false accusation comes in, pays no attention to you, O king. Now, there's some truth here, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. 
they go to the king and they say against Daniel, this guy doesn't pay any attention to you. This guy doesn't serve you. This guy doesn't honor you. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. That right there is a false accusation. And the reason I know that's a false accusation is because the narrative told us in the very beginning of chapter 6 that Daniel had been such a good servant of the king that he had distinguished himself above all of the other officials. He was appointed as one of three officials, and even amongst those, he was top of the class. He was the best servant of the king. And not only do we know that this is a false accusation because of that, but we know it because later in the story when Darius has his feet held to the fire and they say, you have to condemn Daniel because he violated the law you signed, it caused him great anguish. He wouldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. And as he's putting Daniel in the den, he says, I hope that your God will be able to save you. Do you think that's something you would say about someone who dishonored you and offended you and paid no mind to you at all? Absolutely not. Daniel was a faithful servant of the king. He was an innocent man, and he was falsely accused. He was accused on false pretenses before this ruler. And because of this false accusation, Daniel was condemned to die. He was condemned to die. Even after wringing his hands and racking his brain, the, the story says that the king labored until sundown to try to find a way he could spare Daniel. The reason for that is that sundown is the time of the day when executions would be carried out. You'd have the duration of the day to verify whether or not the charge was legitimate and to see if there were any witnesses that could come to defend. And by the end of the day, you had to render a judgment. And so he is pacing back and forth and he's racking his brain all day trying to find a way that he can get Daniel out of this punishment. And he realizes that his own foolishness, his own pride to sign this law into existence is going to force him to do what he otherwise does not want to do. And Daniel is condemned to die. And not only is he condemned to die, but the sentence is carried out. What a, what a method of execution. That you would take a hungry pit of voracious, angry lions, and they would become the executioner of your condemned prisoner. You would take this man and throw him down into the pit where you have starved the lions so that at the first sign of fresh meat that gets thrown into there, they would devour it. This was the method of execution that was chosen for Daniel. He was condemned to die, and eventually he carried it out. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought, and he was cast into the den of lions. And he was cast in with this plea from Darius. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Darius knows enough to know about the God of Daniel, to know about the God of Israel, and he hopes as he sends him to what must have appeared to him to be a certain death, he hopes that his God will deliver him. And in God's kindness, he did deliver him. And the fourth movement of this story of God's deliverance is that he's supernaturally rescued. 
He's supernaturally rescued. He gets thrown into this pit of hungry lions, and he has a sleepover. You ever have a sleepover with your friends? I, just, I remember as a kid, like, the best days were sleepover days. You know, when you and your boys, you're just going to, like, stay up way too late, eat a bunch of junk food, play video games, do whatever you were going to do. You're going to have a sleepover. Usually you're, not getting, usually you're not under threat of getting eaten at a sleepover. Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. He gets thrown into the lion's den, and he, he survives. He makes it through the entire night. And, and why? Why does this happen? Why is he able to supernaturally survive? It is because the deliverance of God. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And when, when Darius comes to the pit and he says, Daniel, are you alive? Did your God save you? What he says to him is, God sent an angel and stopped the mouths of the lions. Now, you have to wonder. Like, sometimes the Bible very casually reports miracles and has no interest in telling you why or how exactly they happened. And I just want to know. Like, that's one of the things I wish we could have on, like, YouTube for review. Like, what happened when he got thrown into the pit? Like, was it that it was, like, imagine, like, a, the Bible describes angelic beings as these, like, brightly shining, glorious creatures. And I just wonder, did one of them just, like, boom, appear in the pit? And the lion lunges at Daniel, and the angel's like, psych! And just stops the mouth of the lion. Like, is that how it happened? And the lion all night is just like struggling and wrestling and trying to eat Daniel. And the angel's like, nope, you're not doing it. Or, or did the angel come and like confuse the lion or strike the lion blind or just supernaturally remove the lion's appetite? So making the lion as if it had just eaten and it was totally satisfied and not looking for anything. I have no idea how it happened. All I know is that there was a pit of hungry lions, and they didn't touch a five-course meal that got laid in front of them. They didn't touch it all night. It is supernatural, divine intervention, supernatural saving and rescue of God's prophet, his faithful man, Daniel. He is delivered from the lions. And this is the fifth part of God's deliverance. It is for his glory. An innocent man is falsely accused, he's condemned to die, and he is supernaturally rescued for the glory of God. And Darius, in this moment, our third king in the story, Darius gives glory to God for what he has seen. This guy, apparently, he was very into issuing new laws. He was into making new commandments, and he makes another one here. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. What you're supposed to take from that is that this guy, Darius, is one of the most powerful people on the planet, and he rules over nations and kingdoms and multitudes. And this guy got all of his messengers on all of their horses and sent them to all of his lands and said this, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before who? The God of Daniel. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? 
think about this for a moment. God had showed up in such a supernaturally undeniable and decisive way in Daniel's life that this king, when he writes to nations, he calls God Daniel's God. He says, you know who we're going to worship from now on? We're going to worship the guy that this guy worships. We're going to worship Daniel's God because, here he says, for he is the living God. He's not a piece of stone. He's not a statue. He's not a dead idol. He is the creator and king of all things, and he is active and present in the world. He is the living God, and he is the eternal God. He is enduring forever. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning. He has no end. He sits over top of the entire timeline. He is God of very gods. And he rules and reigns forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. This God, the God of Daniel, the God who endures forever, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This guy, and presumably many who received this communication from their ruler, gave glory to God for his supernatural deliverance in Daniel's life. This, this in Daniel chapter 6, this is the, the narrative of God's deliverance. An innocent man, falsely accused, condemned to die, is supernaturally rescued for the glory of God. And this exact same story, with these exact same movements, happened not just to Daniel, but happened to another man 600 years later. And it should be no surprise to you that that man is Jesus Christ. If this story and the contours of this narrative sound familiar to you, it's because the whole Bible, every page and every word, is intended to point you to one person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. The, the whole story of the Bible is either rushing you towards Jesus Christ in anticipation of his arrival, as this story is, or causing you to look back on Jesus Christ in remembrance and in worship. But Jesus Christ is the bullseye on the target of the Bible. He is the point of every single sentence. He is what it is all about. And so Daniel here in chapter 6, as he experiences supernatural deliverance, he is foreshadowing the coming ministry and life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like two notes that sing in harmony with each other. We see the story of Daniel, and now that we have the privilege through progressive revelation of seeing all that God has done through the life and ministry of Jesus, we look at Daniel and we say, that's just like Jesus. Jesus went through the exact same story as this. And I want to show it to you. First, an innocent man. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's called in the Bible the spotless Lamb. He is 
himself God of very gods, and yet he came down from the glory and the comfort of heaven, and he left perfect fellowship with the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and he left heaven's throne room to take on a human body, staying fully God, but now becoming fully man. He lived just like us, and yet what the Bible tells us here and in many other places is that he was perfectly without sin. He was completely holy and righteous, just like God himself is, because he is God in the flesh. He is fully God and fully man. He is God incarnate. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is an innocent man. There was never a single time ever that Jesus committed sin. We talked last night all about sin, rebellion against God that separates us from God and earns the wrath of God. Jesus never one time in anything that he thought and anything that he said and anything that he did and anything that he felt, never once did Jesus sin. Jesus was spotless. He was pure. He was totally innocent. And because he was spotless, because he was innocent, at the end of his life, it was a false accusation that took him down. Just like Daniel, there was nothing legitimate that you could bring against Jesus. And so Matthew 26, verse 59 says, now the chief priests... And the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Just like Daniel, Jesus was accused on false pretenses. You see, so similar to the, to the narrative of Daniel, the accusation that the chief priests and the religious authorities brought to the Sanhedrin, to the religious council, they went to the council and they said, this man should be killed because he claims to be God. And guess what? He did claim to be God. It was true. He did say that about himself. And yet that accusation is false because what it implies is that he's not telling the truth. That accusation, it's an accusation of blasphemy. It only sticks if he's lying. It only sticks if he's not God and he claims to be God. And yet he was God in the flesh. And so he is an innocent man, completely spotless, having no sin at all. He's never neglected God. He's never ignored God. He's never worshiped idols. He's never lived in pride. He's never done anything wrong. And so they falsely accuse him. They trump up these charges that are fake and that are phony so that they can condemn him to die. And so they do. Luke chapter 23 says that the crowds responded to Pilate, who is the Roman governor, trying Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Jesus was condemned to die. And I don't know, actually, what feels to be a more horrible execution method. 
to be thrown to a pit of hungry lions or to be whipped and beaten and mocked and spit on, to be drugged publicly through the city so that you can have nails driven through your hands and your feet, to be hung up on a beam of wood where you will sit in excruciating pain before you suffocate and die. And that is the fate that awaited Jesus. Jesus was crucified as these crowds demanded. This was a Roman form of public execution. This was one of the means by which the Roman Empire maintained their control over the people. They publicly strung these people up to die as a message to the watching world. If you cross us, this will happen to you. If you get on the wrong side of the Roman Empire, this crucifixion might just be your future. And so Jesus is publicly shamed. He's beaten within an inch of his life, and he's hung up on a cross to die. And die he does. The scriptures tell us that he cried out that it was finished, that he said to God, into your hands I commit my spirit, and that he breathed his last breath. And Jesus died. However, the story doesn't end there. Jesus, like Daniel, but in a different way, was supernaturally rescued. Daniel, Daniel was spared death because the angel stopped the mouth of the lion. But the supernatural rescue of the Lord Jesus Christ was not because he was spared death but because he went through death and three days later he rose never to die again in the glorious power of the resurrection. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and what a rescue it was. I mean, think about it. It's one thing for God to send an angelic being to stop the lions from eating a prophet. It is a whole nother thing for God to send his very own son and for that son to give his life on a cross and then go through death and defeat death in the power of the resurrection, raising him from the dead. And I love how Peter in Acts chapter 2, in the very first Christian sermon ever preached, I'm preaching a Christian sermon right now. This is like the 10 billionth Christian sermon that has been preached. But in the very first one, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter receives the power of the Holy Spirit, and everyone's confused about what's going on because people are testifying in every known language to the work of Jesus Christ, Peter stands up and he proclaims the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says this, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but the story doesn't end there. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was raised from the dead in the power of the resurrection. And so all of that results in this, just like in Daniel's story, but in an infinitely greater way, it results in the glory of God. One of my favorite places in all the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, 
verse 9 says, Therefore, because Jesus Christ became a man, because he emptied himself, because he took on the form of a servant, because he was obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, for what reason? To the glory of God the Father. What, what, a, what a conclusion to that story. In the same way that Darius gave glory to God because the mouth of the lion was stopped, and he wrote a letter and made a law and sent it out to all of these nations, Far above and way more exceedingly glorious than that, this text says that God has exalted Jesus so that one day every single human being that has ever lived will fall down before his inexpressible glory. And whether willingly as an expression of joy or begrudgingly as an expression of judgment, they will have from their lips the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master and King of every one and everything. That is what is coming for every human being that has ever existed. Submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. This, my friends, this is the story of God and his deliverance. He did it through the story of Daniel, and in an infinitely greater way, he did it in the story of Jesus, an innocent man, falsely accused, condemned to die, supernaturally rescued for the glory of God. Now, you might be thinking at this point in the message, Nick, thank you so much for the history lesson. That is fascinating. But what does it have to do with me? What does it matter if God delivered Daniel? What does it matter even if God delivered Jesus? Who cares? What we see is that Jesus, he goes through the same story arc as Daniel, but this time the implications of the story are not just that it would be written down in the pages of the scriptures so that we could be encouraged and taught. The story of Jesus would be the provision of salvation from God to every single person who believes. This, this is why it matters. Because the story of God's deliverance in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not simply so that you can learn a lesson. It is so that you can be saved from the wrath that you deserve. This is why we're here this week. This is why we're telling the story of Daniel because it is the story of Jesus who went through this arc of God's deliverance that we have the good news of the gospel, which is simply this, Jesus in my place. <laughs> this is the good news of the gospel. You can say it in four words, Jesus in my place. And here's what I mean by that. We've already talked about it. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he came to earth to live a perfectly righteous life. Jesus obeyed God every single way that you and I have disobeyed God. Everywhere that you and I have fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus has measured up to the glory of God. 
And so Jesus lives a perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous life so that he can credit his righteousness into our account before God. So it is his obedience for my righteousness. And then it is his death for my sin penalty. You see, Jesus took all of his innocence and his spotless righteousness being the very God of the universe in human flesh, and he went to the cross, falsely accused and condemned to die, and he went there as a substitute. Jesus didn't just go to the cross to die as a good example of what suffering unjustly looks like. The Bible very clearly communicates that when Jesus went to the cross, he was going as a payment for our sins. That the Lord took the punishment and the penalty that we deserve for our sin and laid it upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ at the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him, that's God, made him who knew no sin to be sin. That means he looked at Jesus and he treated him as if he had lived 10 million lifetimes of sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. And he was crushed on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is his obedience for my perfectly righteous record. It is his death on the cross that covers the payment and the penalty for my sin so that now when God looks at me, he no longer sees me through the lens of all of my guilt and my failure and my sin and my shame because that has been removed from me and it was crucified with Christ on the cross. And now all he sees is the spotless record of his son's obedience that I have by faith. This is the gospel. It is Jesus in my place. He lives the life I could never live. He dies the death I deserve to die. And then he rises in the power of resurrection to give me the gift of eternal life I could never earn on my own. This, this, my friends, this is the best news in all the world. That despite the fact that you have been separated from God as a result of your sin, there is a provision for salvation that has been made on your behalf, and his name is Jesus. Jesus in my place. This is the gospel. This is what the gospel is. This is how it works. And so for all of us who are in this room tonight, we are left with a very simple question. And the question is simply this, how will you respond? How will you respond? There are two options for how you will respond. You will respond in rejection or you will respond in repentance. When you hear this news, when you hear the declaration of God to the world that You have fallen into sin and you are desperately in need of a savior and that savior has been provided through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Now that you have been under the sound of this proclamation of the gospel, you will decide. I'm telling you, every single person in this room at this very moment is making one of these decisions. 
we like to think about the messy middle and the ambiguity and I'm on the fence and I'm not sure whether I'm in or I'm out, but it is not so in the kingdom of God. When you hear the message that there is a savior in Jesus Christ and that he died for you and that he's been raised for your eternal life, you will either reject that truth just like Belshazzar did in Daniel chapter five He hardened his heart against God, and he said, God, I don't need you. I'm going to be king of my own life. And because of that rejection, he faced the judgment of God. And if tonight you hear this news and you decide in your heart that you will stiff arm God and you will say, thanks, but no thanks, I'm not interested the inevitable outcome, and I love you enough to tell you this, the inevitable outcome is judgment from God in hell forever. And yet the opposite response will be repentance. Repentance simply means this. It means turning. And so my hope and my prayer is that there are some of you in this room right now who came to Hume Lake running away from God and that this would be the very moment that you decide to stop and to turn, to quit running away from him and to run toward him and to embrace him by faith and to say, God, I know this message is for me and I need you. This is, this is my plea Belshazzar rejected God, but what we see in Daniel chapter 4 is that Nebuchadnezzar, he repented. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, even after all of his foolishness, even after all of his violence, even after all of his idolatry, he came to the end of himself, and he said, God, I give up. I'm done running from you. I'm done disobeying you. I'm done dishonoring you. Will you save me? And he gave glory to God. And I want you to just think for a moment about what a stunning and staggering expression of the patience and kindness of God that that was. I mean, if I was God, and thank goodness I'm not, but if I was, I would have given up on Nebuchadnezzar a long time ago. This guy who pays me lip service and then builds statues and worships them. This guy who kills and persecutes my prophets. God was patient with him. And that should convince you tonight. Because maybe right now you're thinking, Nick, this message of forgiveness and this message of reconciliation, this message of love, this message of grace, it sounds great for someone else. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I came from. And Nebuchadnezzar's story and a million other stories should convince you that it does not matter who you are. It does not matter where you've been. It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter what's been done to you. There is nothing that disqualifies you from the love of God. And this forgiveness, this salvation, this healing, this blessing, this reconciliation to the God who made you, it can be yours right now. And so I know, guys, I know that this has been an intense week. We've been talking about what it means to be in exile. 
We've been talking about suffering and persecution and trials and difficulty and even facing death. And I know it's been intense. And I know at times it's been hard to hear. But if at any point in this week you have felt fear or shame or guilt or anxiety or pain, I just want this message to wash over you. God loves you. God loves you. And I think the fact that you are sitting in this room right now is proof positive that he is pursuing you with that love. And so I'm, I'm pleading with you because I'm commanded to and because I'm delighted to. I'm pleading with you. Do not reject God. Repent from your sin and trust in him and receive his forgiveness. It's probably the simplest and probably the most well-known Bible verse on planet earth. It's this one, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that is the opportunity that awaits you right now to have the gift of eternal life. And so what I want to do is ask you if you would just close your eyes and bow your head. I want to pray for you and pray with you. And what I want to do actually right now is give you an opportunity to respond. All of you are responding to this message right now. And I want to just invite you if you have never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you can close your eyes and bow your heads. If you have never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about like you came to camp last year and you walked forward and it's been a tough year. I, I'm talking about you came to camp and you did not have a relationship with God. And you know that you're far away from him but in this moment, you want to receive his love and his salvation. Would you just do me a favor and would you, would you just look up at me and for a brief moment, would you raise your hand? I want to pray specifically for you. I want to lead you in praying so that you can run to Jesus and receive salvation. Would you just look at me right now? Pick your head up and look at me and keep it up. Just look at me. I want to see you. And if you would, if you're looking at me right now, would you just shoot your hand up in the air so that I can pray for you? Shoot it up high. Amen. Okay, I want to pray for you guys, so let's pray. And if you would, just join your hearts with me. Raising your hand and looking up at me doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And so in your heart, would you just run to him? And as I pray, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know, God, that we are in desperate need of you. We know, God, that we are separated from you because of our sin. 
But God, we thank you so much that you have provided a savior, your own son, Jesus Christ. God, we believe that his life, his spotless, perfect obedience accomplishes our righteousness. God, we believe that his death on the cross wipes away the stain of my sin. And God, we believe that his resurrection is my way to eternal life. And so God, we run to you by faith and we ask for your mercy. Would you forgive us? Would you soften our hard hearts? Would you open our blind eyes? And would you save us? We need you, Lord. Now, with your head still bowed, if you came to camp and you have a relationship with the Lord, but you've been wandering and you've been walking away from him, I want to pray for you too. If this is the moment that you are deciding, I want to stop compromising, I want to stop being afraid, I want to stop cowering in fear before the culture and the world, and I want to live faithfully and resiliently for the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you look up at me? Would you look up at me and would you raise your hand? Let me pray for you guys. Father, I thank you that there are so many in this room that have a deep desire to be close to you, to know you, to walk faithfully with you. God, we are imperfect. We're broken. We don't have it all together. We don't have everything we need, but God, we have you. Your Holy Spirit the third person of the triune God, Spirit, you live within us. And so we have every reason to believe that you will empower us. You will give us courage. You will give us strength to be faithful to you even in the midst of opposition. And so I just pray your blessing over each of these students that has raised their hand. I pray that you would use the ministry of your word and the fellowship of your people to make them all that you intend them to be, to make them strong, to make them courageous, to make them bold. God, I pray that you would use them for great and glorious kingdom purposes, that they would share the gospel, that they would love and serve in the name of Jesus, that they would give their lives away, that they would embrace the fact that they are different and they would live for your glory, God. Give them, God, a kind of, give them resources spiritually that they feel like they have never had. The chains of sin and addiction and compromise and idolatry that hold them back, would you break them by the power of Jesus? And would you set them free to live for you? Lord, we love you and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I want to do. We can clap. I'm going to be out of here in just a moment, and we're going to sing. But before I leave, Jesus said 
that if you are willing to acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father. The Bible also says that when one person enters the kingdom of God, when one person receives forgiveness, did you know the Bible says they throw a party in heaven, that the angels rejoice? And I would love the opportunity for just a moment for us to join the angels in the celebration of people who for the very first time gave their lives to Jesus tonight and decided, hold on, hold on, we're going to celebrate. Trust me, we're going to go hard in the paint. But I want to know who we are celebrating. So if you would be so bold and so courageous, if the first time I asked for people to follow Jesus for the very first time, if you looked up at me and raised your hand, would you be willing to stand to your feet right now? Would you stand up in this room? Go ahead and stand if you gave your life to Jesus for the first time. Amen. Amen. Would all of you stand and let's lift our voices and celebrate what God has done.